want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. Well, I think what's ha- what happened in every book, actually, up until My Policeman, was I had started with a real story. So I started with some facts, you know. Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giants starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, You can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited to be joined with a guest who I've known a lot about before this interview was booked, but actually one of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room interns, Andrea, made the first connection to Bethann on Instagram, and Bethann responded. So thanks to Andrea for setting this up for us. Um, but Bethann Roberts, I want to just read a little bit about Bethann. Who is she? Um, she's published five novels. She writes short fiction and drama for BBC Radio 4. Her other novels include, well, the, her main, I won't call it the main novel, but the novel we're going to chat about is My Policeman. Um, but her other novels include The Good Plain Cook, which was a BBC Radio 4 book at bedtime. Mother Island, which received a Jerwood Fiction Uncovered Prize. And this one I need to read next. Graceland, which tells the story of Elvis Presley and his mother, Gladys. Uh, She also writes short fiction. She's won the Society of Authors Olive Cook Award and the Royal Academy and Pindrop Short Story Award. She has taught creative writing at Chichester University and Goldsmiths College London. And she lives in Brighton with her family. So she is at the shore, the seashore. Uh, yeah, I am. Right and on so it. am I. Just on Long Island, though. Little oh, nice. across the pond. Um, 
Well, thank you so much, Beth Ann, for joining me here. This is so exciting. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. And, you know, we could maybe reach out across the water almost, couldn't we? And, uh, you know, connect. Yeah, I'll try to. For sure to yours. You know, when I go for a walk today, I'll manifest, you know, sending energy towards Beth Ann and Brighton. Yeah, um, yeah. So, well, first I want to know, since we are going to talk about my policemen mainly, I'm just curious if Graceland, um, you had seen the Elvis film that had just come out with Austin Butler. Have I seen it, or, mm -hmm. or had I seen it before I wrote the novel? <laughs> well, had you have you seen it after your? I novel? have seen it. Yes, I have seen it. It came it came out obviously after I'd written my novel, but um, I have seen it, and um, I absolutely love the first half. Ah, I've heard yeah. that a lot. Okay. Yeah. I thought the first half was very good, and I thought that Austin Butler just does a, you know, the best Elvis impersonation I've ever seen. He's incredible, and I was expecting to hate it, you know, obviously, um, because you know I am Elvis, having written novels about Elvis, so I feel like I've kind of, you know, um, spent a long time fantasizing about what it would be like to be him. So, um. Yeah, and obviously I've watched a lot of Elvis and read a lot about Elvis. So, um, so yeah, I thought that the first half was had so much energy, and I thought that it really caught, um, that kind of very exciting, very daring, taboo busting, um, you know, sexually charged Elvis, mm. um, really well, and in a way that had been kind of forgotten, you know, because lots of people when they think of Elvis. You know, when I was telling people I was writing a novel about Elvis, they would say, oh, he died on the toilet. You know, that's what people know about Elvis, the younger people. Um, so I'm really glad that that movie has brought that other Elvis, you know, into into our vision. Um, and I think it's great. I, I think that the second half kind of, you know, a bit like Elvis's life, the second half is kind of... <laughs> more tricky in a lot of ways and you know that and I think they did a good job but I I, I kind of wasn't as satisfied with it myself it sounds so similar see I've need to see Elvis but um we've had here Elizabeth Winder who is a Marilyn Monroe biographer and I dissected the blonde film with her and Elvis and Marilyn it's very similar in that tightrope of of film portrayal where um the beginning stages really germany and the creativity is all there but like my frustration with marilyn and elizabeth i'll speak for her but she said this on the podcast um that they never get her intellect right like they never show her film production company her reading it's always through the men and I mean, I guess Elvis is a little different because of the gendered aspect. Yeah. Um, but did you feel that way when you were writing that, like your fictive account, like it's fictive, but it's biographical, like Joyce, Joyce Carol Oates's Blonde, yeah. um, that it was tricky? Oh, like, yeah, I mean, it's so tricky. Um, it's so tricky, but in a way, you just kind of have to give yourself permission, you know, 
to go with it and see what happens. I mean, I never thought I'd write a novel about Elvis. It just seems a preposterous thing to do to me now. You know, who did I think I was? You know, I am not even American. It's ridiculous. But um, but I always loved Elvis since I was little. And, you know, my mum's a massive Elvis fan. And once I started reading about him, I just couldn't. I kind of couldn't leave it alone. And, um, you know, once I kind of got a bit of a handle on the Elvis and his mum narrative and you know what that what that meant for him and what it meant for her when he became famous that was kind of my way in but for sure I was um really uh influenced I guess by Joyce Carol Oates's Blonde I think that's a terrific novel and it kind of showed me a way to do it you know that it was okay to do this and it was okay to kind of imagine yourself as that person that had existed, but also as, you know, your own version of that person that had existed and to kind of hold both of those things at once and somehow kind of run with it, that would be okay. So I just took a leap and and, and did it, you know, and, and loved it. Um, I mean, you know, what's not to like, Joy? You know, and plus, you know, my, my novel ends when Gladys dies, no spoilers, but, you know, um, so I didn't tackle the kind of, you know, uh, there were obviously there were loads of seeds of, of stuff that happens later in Elvis's life all there from a very early age, actually. So, you know, there's plenty of trouble, but it doesn't get us depressing, really, as, um, as the second half did, for sure. Well, and how sad about Priscilla and what happened to her, with her death, and it was just... Like especially seeing her at an award show, and then that next week, Lisa she Marie passes away. I know, I know. I was so shocked, you know, really shocked. Um, and you know, yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about the family now, to be honest, but it it just seems like the kind of legacy of that amount of fame is is um a very difficult thing that is still playing out, you know. Yeah. Well. I mean, in that sadness, um, but I will say, like, what now I, I'm telling you, I'm going to read Graceland. I'm going to post it on Instagram. Uh, oh. I let you know yeah. when I finish. Um, but it does make sense to me now, especially knowing your process through that taking a historic, well, a music legend and then really creating a fictive psychology around him and his encounters, it makes sense why E.M. Farster would have been like, so I didn't know about the E.M. Farster connection until I was reading My Policeman, uh -huh. but I was like, this actually reminds me of E.M. Farster's Morris uh, <laughs> and his life, like a, a new updated a version that we'll get into, but um then when I realized you had based this whole triangulation of desire with our three leading characters, Marion, uh, Tom, and Patrick, and saw it was based on E.M. Farster's own love yeah. for a policeman, um, yeah. it makes sense. Is that your process as you start from the real ex everyday experience and then you build your world? Yeah, I mean, it's... 
it's different with every novel, you know, it's hard to say, to, to generalise, but I think that what happened was, um, well, I think what's ha what happened in every book, actually, up until My Policeman, was I had started with a real story. So I started with some facts, you know. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So, enjoy your reading, everyone. Um, and you know, my second book was loosely based on um, the time that Peggy Guggenheim spent in West Sussex very little known but she did actually live quite near here where I am now um, for for a little while and I thought that was very interesting that you had this kind of eccentric American millionaires living in a in a cottage in 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 West Sussex and she she employed a, a local girl as a cook and I thought oh that's interesting so that's kind of where that that second novel came from and and I'd really enjoyed that process of kind of you know having some sort of framework to to work with I suppose and um you know having lots of kind of jumping off points for your imagination um and trying to see, I suppose, you know, where are those kind of gaps, silences, omissions, you know, where the, where the novelist can kind of jump in, you know, and imagine it. Um, so um, I, when I was kind of looking around, I suppose, for another idea for a, for a new novel, I was thinking about Forster. And, you know, I'd loved Forster for a really long time. And I actually got into Forster through 
um, the Merchant Ivory movies, you know, because when I was growing up, they were they were on, you know, on Channel 4. And I had a little kind of black and white portable telly back in the dark ages. Um, and it was in my bedroom. And I used to, you know, in my house, you didn't really watch that that kind of movie. You know, it was a bit a bit highbrow. So um, so I would watch them kind of on my own late at night in my bedroom. And they and it felt kind of a little bit sort of forbidden almost, you know, although they're very sort of genteel. Um, and I absolutely loved, you know, the version of A Room with a View. Um, I mean, it's got that kind of 80s excess you know Helena Bonham Carter's hair is kind of out here and the costumes are amazing and you know the music is sumptuous and all of that but also I think I just loved the um the humor in it and the warmth in it you know they were they were the things that I really responded to and that took me to the novel and then that took me to reading Forster so so you know I I loved him for a long time and I thought well I wonder if if there's a novel there somewhere, you know, in, in his life or whatever. So I started reading about Forster and I kind of quickly realised actually that to take on, I mean, it has been done, you know, um, uh, to take on writing a novel about Forster himself would feel too big a project for me at that time. You know, um, I didn't really feel that I was up to it, like I had the right to do it, I suppose. And I think writing about about writers, especially, you know, figures like Forster is it's just, you know, an absolute minefield. And I didn't feel quite up to it. But what I did, what I kind of couldn't let go, I suppose, was um, the story of Forster and Bob Buckingham. Um, who was a policeman who forced to met, I think, when he was in his 50s and Bob was in his kind of early 30s. Um, and Bob was about to be married to a woman called May Hockey, who was a nurse. And um, Bob and Morgan Forster, um, you know, embarked on this long relationship, I think about 30 years. Um, and, you know, Bob was really the love of Forster's life. Um, as far as we can know. Um, but, you know, um, Bob remained married throughout to, to May. And at the time when I was reading about this, uh, Wendy Moffat's biography, great biography, of course, hadn't come out. So it felt even more exciting because it was like I was kind of like reading between the lines a little bit, you know, because at the time the, the, the big biography was the P.N. Furbank Life of Forster, which is fantastic, but doesn't, but is kind of coy about, you know, naming what's actually going on here. Um, but, you know, there were these wonderful uh, studio um, photographic portraits of Forster and Bob looking at one another, you know, and you can just see, you know, that the, the love there. And so, um, you know, it was, it's very clear in that book that that, that that relationship, you know, was a kind of a, a deep love relationship, even though it never says that outright. Um, so that was interesting to me. And even more interesting to me was that although uh, May had a, had a, a difficult relationship with Forster 
at the beginning, um, they kind of worked things out, you know, and, you, you know, I mean, who we're never going to know, you know, how May really felt or indeed how Borsa really felt. But um, it seemed to be that they kind of negotiated the triangle and, you know, May would have Bob some weekends, Borsa would have him other weekends. And actually, you know, at the end of Forster's life, when he'd had a stroke, he was nursed by May at her house, at the Buckingham's house in, in Coventry, which I kind of love because Coventry is a, a very sort of, you know, mundane place compared to Cambridge, you know, where, which is where we normally imagine Forster. And there he is in this kind of semi-detached house in in, in Coventry being nursed by by May, you know, his his his, his lover's wife. And she was apparently the one who's there holding his hand as he died. So that was the kind of image, I suppose, that, that really interested me. And I guess I wrote the book as a way of trying to explore how that comes about and how, you know, how three people get to that point. Now, obviously, you know, I made a very conscious decision that I was going to take this away from um the source material so I was going to make up I was going to give myself permission to make up these characters having said that you know their roots are in those three people as far as I can understand them although you know I changed a lot so I changed the period you know I changed mm -hmm. um, um, the people and 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 the story and it became a much darker story really I guess um, but yeah, I've forgotten now what your initial question was. So well, I'm... no, no, that's it. It's, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just having a coffee with you, Bethann. Uh, <laughs> we're just, you know, chatting. And I, what I think is so fascinating is what really works in your novel, and then especially for the film adaptation of your novel, um, is the period, in my opinion, because as a 19th century queer male literary scholar, I dwell a lot on Whitman and Wilde, and I know a lot about the Bloomsbury group, Forrester, uh, Dominic, um, it'll come to me. Not, I was about to say another queer historian friend of mine. I was like, wait, he's not from the Bloomsbury group. Um, but <laughs> Forrester, Virginia Woolf, her sister. Um, and they're, like what I always love with Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster is they're literally not only their queer experience, but they're literally straddling the Victorian to the modern period. And they've now been exposed to what homosexuality is like they they've lived through or have heard about Oscar Wilde's trial. They know that there are people being convicted of sodomy and there's um undercover um same-sex desire and acts because they're not allowed to be out in public especially if they're lower class um mm. so like what i find though is setting your novel in 1957 with the love triangulation the desire the queer male experience is really it's right before like 10 years before Stonewall, I mean, a little more than 10 years, but still right before LGBTQ rights and that whole um, surge happens of having to be in public, like saying we need 
rights yeah. so we can live in public. Like, was that really key for you? Is yes, it has I mean, to be here. Yes, it was. It was key. I realized that um, you know I wanted it to be. Well, I wanted to write about the fifties from a personal point of view um, because my parents grew up in the fifties, so I'm nosy, you know, to imagine what that would have been like. And it's one of those things, you know, uh, the kind of twilight zone that I think is a really rich thing actually for 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 a writer to kind of delve into because you kind of. I feel like I sort of know the 50s, you know, I mean, I was born in 1973, so obviously I don't, but um, I feel like I do because my, because my parents grew up then, you know, so I have a lot of their memories of it and, you know, family photographs, you know, um, listening to music, Elvis, listening to the music, you know, watching uh, films from them and, and so on. So there was a kind of personal link for me um, but also, of course, you know, that period in Britain was a period when, you know, there was basically um, a cruel and very focused witch hunt against gay men. And, you know, I think the Home Secretary said something like, you know, he wanted to rid Britain of this plague or something like that. I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like that. And, you know, there was a very kind of deliberate um move to kind of uh wheedle out homosexual men from from positions of power in government and um you know in kind of powerful positions in society and it, in fact you know things became more oppressive here than they had been um you know during the war and, and between the wars um there was this kind of tightening up you know of um you know so-called uh, morality so i thought that was very interesting so that's why there was a kind of um surge in uh, you know cases of them being in, imprisoned um and so yeah setting the novel kind of 10 years before that law changed felt like that would be uh kind of the most i suppose you know sorry but i am a novelist you know the most dramatic mm -hmm. uh, period when that particular triangle might play out right um and also i think i just i really i was interested in writing in the 50s you know particularly and i found this book which is called daring hearts and it's a it's a it's an oral history project that was done here in I think the early nineties, and it's just full of um, so it says lesbian and gay lives of fifties and sixties Brighton, and once I'd got that, and you know, and I'd read the stories in there, that just kind of set me off thinking, okay, you know, this is really really rich material because it's full of the kind of joy actually of countercultural lives and of, you know and Brighton is a place where um you know for a long time it's been uh, a kind of very different place in the UK you know it's a place where you're allowed to break the, break the rules you know um it's a place that's famous for you know so-called dirty weekends um, and, you know, sexual license, you know, and having a party 
right? And it's kind of always been that way, but it's also, um, you know, a, an, an English small town. And I just thought, well, you know, I wonder what that was like in the 50s, you know, when those kind of uh, repressions were, were so apparent. Um, and yet things were changing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and and the book is you know it's it's full of, of of joy and rebellion and you know these lovely little details of um, queer life in the fifties and sixties here, and it's very specific. So it's got all those kind of crunchy little things that you need to write a novel, you know, and lots of them end up in my policeman. So you know things like the Argyle hotel where Patrick goes, you know, and there's the oriental boy on the on, on the piano playing stormy weather that's directly lifted from Daring Hearts from that book. So um yeah, that kind of cemented it, I think, you know, when I when I read that. Yeah, Brighton has always fascinated me, not only because it's a song in Sweeney Todd, um, <laughs> which I think it is by the sea. Um but we've had um, Jeremy Atherton Lynn here who lives in Brighton, um, oh, nice. who wrote a book called Gay Bar. Um, oh, like yeah, during... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he's your neighbor, maybe. Uh, but uh, yeah, and um, he talked about that queer freedom in a way that Brighton offered. And in a way, it reminds me of what we have here in America, which is Fire Island, which I know a lot of history about, even Atlantic City um, with its casino lifestyle, racial integration, like always a little ahead of the time because of that escapism. So it it is fascinating how those shore towns function. Um, So I love the setting. I mean, when um, the film starts even, I couldn't believe how high the walls were of like what, I don't know what you would call that, but whatever, like the stairs that lead to the actual shore or the sea cliff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I've like, never seen anything like that in my life of how <laughs> high it is. I'm like, this is high. Yeah, yeah well, you see, but you see that that's along the coast mm. in, um, you know, Peacehaven where they, where they end up. Which, you okay. know, although it's only, I don't know, three miles away from central Brighton, five miles maybe, is incredibly different. So, you know, Brighton it is flat and you go pretty much down to the, well, no, it's not completely flat. There, there are steps, actually. There are steps. But not like that cliff in Peacehaven. Yeah, Peacehaven's a very strange, very strange place indeed. <laughs> well, say- I have to make a trip eventually when i'm back in england i want to see my friends in the north my friends in the south no i've only been to central london okay yeah yeah so a little different uh, uh i've been in the bloomsbury area that's actually where i stayed um, oh, nice. by the british library so yes, my favorite very, nice. very uh, pretty you know we have chelsea farmhouse very near to brighton Oh, okay. Yeah, where? Yeah, no. Um, um, hang on, Vanessa Bell lived. Oh wow. Yeah, so that's like I don't know, fifteen miles away from here. I go there quite a lot just for a little walk and a, and a cup of tea. Oh, wow. Very, very okay, nice. so there's 
Yes, there's the Bloomsbury culture lurking. Um, but when I had um, William DeCanzio on, and before I hit record, Beth Ann was telling me that she's going to read Alec. Um, it was that same um, question that I had for him, which I would love for you to answer, Beth Ann, which is, Beth Ann, which is um, working with the desire, like working with the themes of longing, desire, um, a especially forbidden quotes, in quotes, I mean, back then, a type of much more charged forbidden nature of queer male desire. How tough was that as a process of trying to get into that psyche of knowing, especially Patrick, really is invested in this relationship, but knowing, in a way, kind of like Morris, um, that Tom, I'm saying Tom is more like Morris, um, has this need to separate or wants to turn to a different life. And it's so heartbreaking, that process. Yes. You know? Yeah. So how hard is it to get into that mindset? Yeah, how, how difficult is that psyche? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, okay, so I mean, there are a couple of things, aren't there, to talk about. Um, you know, one is that, I suppose, forbidden desire is a big subject for all novels. <laughs> um, and, you know, novels that I like, I suppose, tend to deal with it. Um, you know, I'm very interested in it, personally. Um, and... So I guess in a way, you know, not very, it's not very difficult because, and I, and I guess that also, uh, I guess my connection, you know, personally, because, you know, as you can see, I'm not a gay man. <laughs> um, you know, I guess my sort of personal connection is through, you know, just growing up as a woman in a, in a, in a working class uh, culture where I guess I was always aware that, you know, the, the expression of desire was, was not, um, was not welcomed, you know. Um, and I suppose that, that I was very interested in Marion's, uh, Marion's own internal repression of her desires and her kind of shame about them, the deep shame about them, and how difficult they are for her to understand, and her misunderstanding of her own feelings, and how they had, you know, that had a parallel, not the same, obviously, not the same, because, you know, her desires aren't policed, literally policed in the same way. Um, but that there was some kind of parallel there with, with Patrick and, and with Tom. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book? 
film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit theglreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. And I think that, you know, for me, um, I always felt like, I suppose, you know, as, as you know, the, 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 the expression of female desire for a man, you know, sexual desire, um, wasn't as, wasn't, I, I didn't find somewhere, I suppose, in kind of women's, women's writing or, you know, women's films, um, that felt as kind of liberated and true as I did in queer writing, queer films. Do you know what I mean? You know, yes, like it's yes. kind of much more okay to kind of get into it in a in a gay novel than it is in a you know in a in a kind of feminist novel. Say, Do you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, and it's so. So I suppose you know from that point of view, it felt just kind of like a joy you know <laughs> um because i am just sitting here imagining it you know i don't have to live it so um um i guess that that was my kind of way in you know i mean having said that um i was very worried and still am worried about you know who i am and whether i have the right to to write this stuff you know um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I'm uh, very kind of convinced by the idea that, you know, fiction writers have, if they do their research properly and they earn the right through research, that they can go anywhere and, you know, write anything. And, uh, you know, and I, I like that idea a great deal and I think it's an important idea um, because, you know, what is fiction about if it's not about empathy and about walking a mile in somebody else's shoes you know that's what it's about but of course you know on the other hand I was aware when I was writing it that in lots of ways I don't have that, that right you know to to write this character of Patrick because because I'm not a gay man um and I still kind of wrestle with it and I don't know what the answer is and you know I'm not sure I'm not sure if now I would I would write this novel 
Yeah, I mean, when I started writing it, it, it was about probably a good, so it came out 10 years ago, and I, I guess I started writing it about 13, 14 years ago, you know, in actual fact. And, you know, it feels like the conversation has kind of moved on. And that, you know, rightly, there's a lot more emphasis now on, on own voices, you know, which I think is really, really important. And, you know, so I don't know, you know, I, I haven't kind of decided, you know, but I, I, I was worried about it and I remain worried about it. You know. Well, I wouldn't be worried about it. I, I'll be your your press person, uh, Bethann, um, because I find that what is so ingenious in your narrative um, and we will talk about the film adaptation because I'm sure, um, you know, it really launched these characters into the universe visually. Yeah. But mm. it reminds me of Michael Cunningham's The Hours, where, yeah. Thank you. right? I mean, if I was teaching your novel, I would teach it with The Hours um, and maybe even Mary Renault's The Persian Boy, um, The Color Purple. Like, I can even basically queer historical fiction it's yeah. and like what michael cunningham does so splendidly is it's not about virginia wolf it's about how mrs dalloway becomes this awakening novel and mm -hmm. like in a way that's where i feel patrick's art really becomes the way in for both tom and marion but mm -hmm. what you do so like, I have to say to you, I was so struck and moved by Marion's conflicts because she is really not condemning. Well, I mean, we um, I don't want to spoil it for everyone who hasn't watched or read uh, yeah. Beth Ann's novel. I mean, she does, of course, pull the trigger on a decision. Um, yeah. But she isn't outrightly condemning um, homosexuality or like she's trying to find the humanity. And I find how she, like the agency where she's trying to, like you've said it, she's trying to realize her own ambition and her agency and she's stuck. But yet she also sees that Tom is stuck with his own desire. So it's like, for her to process all of this, um, there's a lot of complicatedness with Marion. I really think that's what you've done so brilliantly, Bethann, is you've presented this tug of war, psychologically a tug of war. And I haven't seen that in a novel uh, yeah. since the hours. I mean, everyone out there who's been on the podcast, I love your novels, but like that psychological depth is really not easy to present and you do it so beautifully we're going to be talking about my policeman for a while <laughs> like it is it is something that we're going to remember thank you thank you that 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 really touches my heart because i love the hours you know and i it was one of the novels i read before writing my policeman and it is one of my all-time all-time favorites and the color purple yeah. um but yeah, I mean, I suppose that's what I'm always trying to do, you know, is get into that kind of complexity of human relationships, really, and how it's never, you know, it's it's always, you know, that, that, that 
fiction is, you know, one of my tutors said to me very early on, you know, fiction is about, you know, good people doing bad things, you know, and that's kind of always what I'm interested in, I think. And that they're all good people doing bad things, aren't they? You know, to a certain extent. Yeah, well, and the queerness is flawed in, like, Patrick's intentions are questioned, Tom's intentions of marrying Marion, but being with Tom, I mean, sorry, being with Patrick at the same time is unethical, um, immoral in a way, um, but Marion also steps in it. So flawed characters are what I'm drawn to. I mean, I think, like you said, that's our psychology. That's who we are as people. Yeah. Um, and, but there's such, well, let's get, I need to ask you about the film, which is, well, first, a shout out also to your audiobook performers, because they are so well cast. Um, yes. Yeah. And I loved how they portray the flashbacks like that. You actually have Marion's voice and right. you have Patrick's voice um, in their writing. And yeah, so moving. It's such a wonderful audiobook. Oh, good, good, because I haven't really dared to listen to much of it. <laughs> I know a lot of writers never want to. There's only been a few, maybe two, who've listened to their full audiobook. So you're in a big class of writers <laughs> who don't want to listen, so, uh, which I could understand. I'm sure it's. I'm sure they've done a good job. I just don't really want to listen to my own novel. <laughs> no, no, it's wonderfully done. But something that was so interesting of a difference uh, mm. with the film is we don't get time markers, right? I actually was waiting for, oh, okay, when is 1957 going to come on the full screen? When is 1999 going to come? And I think for the film, it works with the mystery of ambiguity because people's faces change in the mm. same scene, right? We get Marion, her younger version, when it's actually her older version in the scene. And the yeah. same goes for Tom and Patrick. So yeah. like cinematically, it's so beautifully done. But it's to ground us in your novel, like the flashback is so important. And yeah. how did that begin for you as a literary device? Like we need, I need to jump back in time. Um, well, I think it was just always there because I knew that I wanted to explore this, you know, this scene <laughs> of the of the three of them together at the end, you know, of of, of um, Patrick's life, um, or Forster's life as it as it was, or you know, apparently the end. Um, so I knew that that was where I wanted to be, but I think I quickly kind of realised, okay, but the, the kind of the meat of the story of why they are here, you know, happened a long time ago. So I'm going to need to have a dual time frame. And of course, what that does is, you know, it kind of immediately gives you all sorts of possibilities as a as a novel, a, a, you know, as a novelist, because you can. Um, <clears throat> compare and contrast those two those two times and you know and, and the great thing about a novel is you know unlike in a, in a film where it's actually quite difficult to as you say to you know mark the passing of 
of time and I think they do it very well in the movie because partly because they've kind of um you know the casting is very good um but you know in a novel of course you can just do it in the middle of a sentence you know it's like boom there we are we're in, we're back a hundred years boom we're you know you can go wherever you want um you know however you want to do it as long as you take your reader with you so that's a great freedom isn't it and um yeah and I I enjoyed that and you know and I liked um you know I liked the kind of thing of having those questions I suppose opened up you know right at the beginning you know why why have you taken this man you know into your home and you know what's what are these relationships about and then kind of spinning back in order to to mind them and also I like the idea of the characters themselves I suppose uh you know having their own kind of moment of like oh okay let's let let me look you know or Marion at least let me look back at what I have done and reconsider you know um reconsider my life really yeah well how many um tell you that like both your novel and your film I mean I must have teared up at least well the ending of the film I think I cried for a minute that was one of the most heart it's both heartbreaking and liberating it's it's so complicated again I don't want to like say the ending but it is it builds all it builds us up to kind of anticipate what Marion's going to do at the end and decide um but there's just so much tension that happens in the ending and especially to realize that the three of them haven't been in the same place for 40 years like mm. more than 40 years is hard to fathom and yeah I mean how many tell you that they are just the ending, they just are so, it's such a complicated feeling that they're processing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's always what I'm hoping for from ending, yeah. I suppose, you know, that there are a lot of complicated feelings and that, and that in a way, you know, one, the end of one story is the start of another one. Um, yeah, I mean, I I thought that the ending of the of the movie, I think, actually, is probably more successful than the ending of, of of the novel in some ways. You know, because there is more. It was more kind of purely emotional, I suppose. I found it very moving as well. That last shot of the two of them, and then you know, Marion and the play, but but um, but yeah, I thought they did that very well, and I thought that they, like you say, they managed that kind of. You know, difficult balancing act of, of you know hope and heartbreak, um, mm -hmm. really beautifully actually, yeah. Yeah. Well, I do feel like in your novel, what I love so much is that Marion has her say. Mm. Like we don't really get her outburst in the film, the way we do in your novel. Like for your novel, I felt it was almost um, uh, a doll's house like Nora in a doll's house with Ibsen, like having that realization moment of, okay, I'm slamming the door. Like I need to live my life. Yeah. Um, right in the film, we get that 
it doesn't have to be told to us, right? That's where the visual, she can look out at the sea and you understand the metaphor um, yeah. in her eyes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that cast is so, so wonderfully cast. I mean, I don't think I've seen, I mean, Rupert Everett, I've, saw, I've seen him on stage in the Oscar Wilde play that he was part of. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. Um, yeah. Harry Styles. Yes. Um, I know Andrea, she's a big fan, uh, but I am too. I thought he did such, he's so good at the 50s. I mean, don't worry, darling. Uh, it's made for it, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, which is fascinating because his concert appearance is so Gen Z and so full of eccentricity like Elton John. So it's interesting how yeah. he plays the nostalgia. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, let me ask you, I wouldn't be a My Policeman interview without asking you, did you have a chance to meet the cast? I know someone else wrote the screenplay, but how involved were you with being consulted during the production? Um, not very is, is the answer. I mean, however, um, so the, uh, the, the producer, um, I'm sure you know, um, was Robbie Rogers, um, uh, who got in contact with me about, I don't know, about a year after the novel was published, saying that, you know, that, that the novel meant a great deal to him personally. Um, I think at the time he had just published his memoir about coming out you know, as a professional soccer player. Um, and we met and, you know, I could just see, I could just feel really, you know, that, that, that the novel really had touched him and that he was going to look after my story. Because I could see how much it meant to him, and I could see that he was passionate about it. So that was great, and and uh, so he was very good at um, keeping me in, in the loop about what was going on. But of course, um, you know, when you sign over um, the option to your novel, unless you're already hugely successful, you know, and a name, um, you're not. You know, you basically you are handing the whole thing over. So um, I didn't have any kind of official say, you know, in, in, in what happened. Um, but, you know, because Robbie is, is lovely and amazing, um, he did kind of keep me in the loop. And I met up with Ron Neiswanger, who wrote the script. Um, he came over to Brighton and I walked him around all the locations. Um, and, uh, you know, took him to Peacehaven, which um, like you, he couldn't really believe existed. And, um, you know, just, we just got on really well and we just chatted for a couple of days, basically. He came over to my house and we had dinner. And, yeah, he was like, um, so I did see the script at quite an early stage um, and was just really pleased that it seemed very true to the novel, you know, that, I mean, you know, I don't, I've I've wrote I write scripts for radio, you know, write drama for radio, but I've never written a script for the screen. So um uh it was, you know, I, I didn't really know kind of how to read it, do you know what I mean? I wasn't kind of and also it I was just so amazed that it actually existed, to be honest, that it was quite mm -hmm. difficult to get any kind of critical distance on it. But I could see that they had 
uh, kind of remain true to the feeling of the novel. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you lose a huge amount, don't you? Because, you know, it's a, a film is two hours and a, and a novel is, you know, <laughs> however many hours it takes you to read a novel, you know. Um, so a lot more. So yeah, yours uh, is 11 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Mine's 11 hours. So, you know, obviously a lot of things are, are going to be lost. But, you know, um, I was, you know, generally pleased with what with, with what was there. Um, and then when they made the movie, I mean, you know, I live just up the road from where they were shooting. Um, so, um, you know, I was invited down to the set and I did meet... Um, some of the cast, including Harry, um, on the beach at New Haven on a very, very cold day. It's absolutely freezing on that. So it's that scene where they are, he is teaching her to, no, he isn't teaching her to swim yet. So it's the scene where they first meet. Oh, the flirtation, right? Yeah. With yeah. her friend. So there in his shorts. Okay. Her long skirt on and you know, it looks like it's a lovely day on the beach and it was freezing and I could see they were kind of blue with the cold, you know, so there was no way they were getting in that water that day. Um, but yeah, so, and you know, I mean, and everybody was just lovely and just really, um, uh, you know, really, really special thing to, to meet these, you know, amazing actors who, who you know can just bring so much to to any word that they say <laughs> it's really mm. quite incredible I mean Gina McKee is in you know acting royalty and so is Rupert Everett you know I didn't I didn't meet Rupert Everett uh, no no I did I met him very briefly at the um uh, at the um, premiere in London but um I didn't meet him that day um and you know David Dawson I just thought was absolutely fantastic as as patrick i thought he really embodied it he was wonderful uh, yeah, yeah. Was um so yeah so you know it was amazing to go down there and just kind of and it was a sort of out of body experience you know <laughs> to be honest so bizarre to just crunch up that beach and you know mm -hmm. the beach is quite steep like that you kind of go go up the hill of pebbles and then you know you get to the top and you, and then you can see you know oh my god there's Harry Styles and Emma Corrin and they are Marion and Tom now apparently you know and they're speaking lines that are quite similar to the ones that I wrote you know it's and it's just felt very very weird and kind of um you know I can't really describe to you how strange how strange and thrilling you know that is to see that especially because you live right around the corner basically that it manifested in this way I mean that's I know and it was almost so moving like, yeah you know I could hear I could hear the styles fans you know <laughs> screaming you know what I mean it's like oh they're just down the road you know yeah well I love his acting I've I like him in don't worry darling um so yeah Harry's gonna keep going I think we'll see Will he enter the 1960s? I don't know. Or the yeah. 1970s, but. Yes. Uh, so um, I do want to, Andrea has been sitting in on this and I just want Andrea, you know, to weigh in because I know she, um, you know, if you have a question, Andrea, or 
just to say to Beth Ann, maybe how my policeman has moved you. It's your time <laughs> to shine. Well, thank you. Um, well, first of all, it's such an amazing novel. And I'm so, I, I don't know why it took me so long to converse with Andrew about it. Because um, it's the perfect, you know, it feels like the perfect fit for this kind of podcast that, you know, we do here. Um, my question would be, did you, when obviously when, you know, you wrote it as a novel to be read as a novel, did you ever think that it could be adapted into a film or that even, and yes, because Harry Styles is in it and he has a big following, but that it would even become kind of as big as it was like in all of these movie theaters with these huge premieres and, and you know, that kind of thing. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. No. <laughs> of course not. No. I mean, it's a weird thing, you know, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I've said this before somewhere else, but I'll say it again, you know, when I first watched the movie, my main kind of emotion really was I just felt very exposed because, you know, and, and uncomfortable, not because I didn't like it, but because it was like my kind of secret world that I'd just been pouring, you know, onto into my notebook, here's my notebook now, you know, that's what I write in. You know, and there's my little words, right? And I, and you know, in order to kind of allow myself, um, to write these, you know, fantasies that are novels, I kind of have to convince myself that I'm doing it in conditions of complete privacy, you know. And it's like, although I hope someone will read it one day, obviously, reading is such a, um, it's such a more, you know, it's just a more intimate experience, isn't it, than the cinema? Because you know, it's the book is happening, it's unfolding within you, you know, within your mind. It doesn't exist apart from in readers' minds, right? Whereas you know, a film exists on a screen for all to see, um, you know, and those characters are literally larger than life. So I kind of wanted to hide a little bit, you know, it's like oh yeah, all my little fantasies are kind of being exposed up there. But of course, the other emotion is I want to run down the street screaming, you know, my book got made into a movie. You know, it's incredibly thrilling. And and of course, I never imagined 
for one second, you know, that it would get A, made into a film and B, made into a film starring Harry Styles. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, right, you know, that that exists. I mean, what, you know? Um, so, you know, and, and even when, um, even when the option was was bought and you know and I met Robbie and I could see he was very serious you know and obviously you know his partner um Greg Galanti you know is a major kind of producer um you know even then I just thought well it's still it's not gonna happen I couldn't allow myself I think to think you know that might actually happen because it seemed like too big a dream you know um because, you know, my agent told me well, you know, about 1% of novels that get optioned actually make it to the screen. And I'm sure that's true. You know, I mean, it's incredibly hard to to raise the money. But of course, you know, and, and indeed, you know, it went on for 10 years, you know, that whole kind of process, really, from option to screen. You know, and it wasn't until I had that meeting, you know, um sort of two years before the film came out with Robbie and with, with Michael Grandish, the, the director, and they informed me that, you know, Harry Styles had um, just left the building, you know, <laughs> and was interested in playing Tom. And then I, and it was only then that I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe the film will get made, you know. Um, and then I did run down the street screaming, you know. <laughs> maybe that's your next novel, the, fic the Harry Styles fictive biography you know do you know what i sort of thought about the other day i thought oh maybe i could <laughs> yeah you know well, i think he would be in it <laughs> yeah thank well, you i'll credit you andrew okay yes please credit me <laughs> oh and the painter i was thinking of is duncan graham and the reason yes, yeah. from the bloomsbury group i'm thinking of him is because i have his swimmers painting in my apartment and it, it was giving me, when I saw the scene in um, Venice, I really found that classical homoerotic, almost call me by your name. And like, I love those types of representations between men. But, you know, thank you, Andrea. Um, that was, I love that question. Yeah, and yes, and Beth Ann, it has been wonderful spending time with you, having this pleasure of your process. Um, I'm going to hold up my policeman for everyone. A very, we could do a whole discussion about the evocative cover. Um, but yes, I know. I rather like it. I have to say. I do. I like yeah. it. And I love that it shows that it's free on prime video, which your, the film has gotten a lot of exposure. Yeah. I love how widely available it is and yeah. it's been wonderful. So everyone out there, please. Get your hands, get your ears, get your eyes. Absorb my policeman in every iteration. Um, it's such a wonderful narrative. And I'm so thankful, Beth Ann, that you have come out with this novel and this story that really needed to be told in this complex way. So thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to be here. Yes. Chatting. Really well, I can't wait for everyone to listen. And uh, yes, please let me know when you uh, read Alec. Um, yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, definitely I will. I yes. didn't even think about it. I'm a mate, you know, so thank you for 
um, you know, bringing that to my attention. I well, I'm to... fanning out that you listen to my interviews, so uh, <laughs> I might have to shout you out more in interviews. With my research. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for that. Um, everyone out there, please, um, you know, let us all know Beth Ann is on Instagram. Uh, you know, please send her love in messages, uh, tag us in stories. And yeah, I can't wait to have you back again, Beth Ann, because I'm sure you have another, you have works in your mind that are in your black notebook that you yes. will be sharing with the world soon. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Beth Ann. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want you all to follow us on social media because there's so many video clips that we share and so many photos about these episodes. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Follow our Facebook page, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, our video interviews, the True Crime and Academia bonus episodes, and all Ivory Tower Boiler Room bonus episodes. Thanks for buying a coffee for me. And thanks to an amazing team. Thanks, Mary. She's our chief contributor. And thanks to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Spring interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Sarah, Sheila, and Rosie. See you all again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. <laughs>